Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. In this week's Church Times, I've written a feature about the American Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Elizabeth Strout. Many of her books are set in Maine in New England, and last month the Bishop of Maine, the Right Reverend Thomas James Brown, kindly shared with me some of his thoughts on her writing. Among other things, we talked about her depiction of the Puritan mindset, the challenges of small-town ministry, and how clergy might respond to the gossip that occurs in their communities. Bishop Brown began by commenting on a comparison often made between Elizabeth Strout and Marilyn Robinson, both of whom have written about church ministers in small towns. So I would just say, I think that your insights about uh, comparing and contrasting Marilyn Robinson with Elizabeth is spot on. One of the things that Marilyn brings to the table that Elizabeth doesn't is that Marilyn really does identify not only as a writer, but also as someone who has done a great deal of theological work. And so she brings a theological voice to her writing and to her interviews. Um, Have you seen the interview that President Obama, uh, the dialogue that President Obama and Marilyn Robinson did? It's some of the finest theology ever really coming Mm -hmm. from her, speaking about this very thing that you're speaking about, which is that she has taken Calvinism and defined it in such a way for many of us for it to be something that's attractive rather than something that is destructive. And I think a lot of Elizabeth's characters um, still cling to, as you say, um, a Puritan mindset that is uh, old fashioned, whereas Marilyn Mm -hmm. gives us characters that I think are not necessarily that they're not old fashioned, but that they have a sense of hope mixed with this um, sense of depravity, which John Calvin has given us, of course. That's a really good observation. I guess sort of in, in sort of mainstream press here, if you talk about someone sort of being a Calvinist, there's kind of an immediate negative association of, of kind of depravity, pre, sort of predestination regarded in a very sort of negative way. So I think it's really interesting what Marilyn Robinson's done to kind of, and also to try and I guess she's often tried to do some good PR for the Puritans by kind of highlighting the ways in which for their time, she's argued they had some kind of progressive qualities. Yeah, yeah, Um, I think that's right. One of the things you wrote to me in our email exchange was your discovery that as you looked at the websites of congregations uh, in Maine who identify as Congregationalist or United Church of Christ, which is the merger body that brought together the evangelical and reformed tradition, which is a Germanic, though yeah. evangelical and reformed church was a congregational system. So mm-hmm. its polity was based in the local church. They were a small church, primarily in the Middle West of uh, the Americas, mm-hmm. and uh, largely Germanic, comprising German immigrants who were obviously historically Lutheran. I think it came of age in the United States in the 1700s. So it's called Evangelical and Reformed. And it is a small strand of what is now the United Church of Christ. 
the Congregationalist Church and ENR merged in the mm-hmm. late 50s to become the United Church of Christ. Right. So so most, most congregational churches, and of course, New England was full of Congregationalists, whereas the Midwest was full of ENR. Uh, so it is absolutely true that, as you, I would say that the that the United Church of Christ, as a denomination, is absolutely one of the most liberal and progressive mm-hmm. in the states. Probably Unitarian Universalists being the most liberal, and then right next to them are the UCCers or the Congregationalists. And so it's not at all surprising to me that as you looked at websites of congregational churches in Maine, you would see a very different picture from the one that Elizabeth paints. And this is born largely uh, because of women and the suffrage movement for women to get the vote in uh, the early 1900s. And then really post-World War II, a number of women, lay women in churches throughout the country of the U.S. got together around birth control and Mm -hmm. advocating for uh, being able to have sex without always getting pregnant. And then from there, the civil rights movement happens, the women's empowerment movement, the uh, gay and lesbian movement, and the United Church of Christ has long been uh, at the center of all of those movements. So the congregational church that Elizabeth and to some extent Marilyn Robinson, though she speaks about the Presbyterian church, fairly similar, is not what you find in Maine right now at mm-hmm. at all. You would be hard pressed to find a congregational church that looks like the kind that Elizabeth portrays in her in her writing. Definitely kind of the sense that I got j- just from looking at some, some websites and some of the towns that I thought might be um, kind of what some of her fictional places might be based on. Um, I suppose, do you recognise the portrait that she paints, nevertheless, of a, a kind of a segment of Maine that clings very tightly to its ancestry, you know, people being very proud that their ancestors can be traced back a long way and maybe that being bound up with some kind of snobbery and some kind of sense of class superiority? Because I guess often what she's talking about as much as religion is actually as actually sort of class and absolutely. and the, the demographics of the region absolutely and that is still very much alive and i think for you to point to that makes abundant sense one of the things that was always true in maine is that the settled church and the town common where the people who went there were also the people who led the town, who were the selectmen and the mayor and the people who taught schools. So there was this great sense of progression. If we if we get enough education, if we if we improve our business practices, we're going to get better and better. And this sense of progressiveness, which is to say that we're getting better, is very much linked in the towns of Maine and in terms of churches. What's also true is that now, uh, here we are in the 21st century, you know, soon to start, not too soon, uh, but soon to start a third decade and, or a fourth decade, right? One, 2000, 2010, 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is to say that I think class is the biggest divider of the nation that I live in uh, more than anything else. And the irony of that is that we, of course, are forever saying that our history is not about class. Mm-hmm. 
And um, it's just not, A, a it's never been true. And, uh, but it's so much a part of the cultural myth of the United States that we are fast leveling society. And that is not true. This, I think, Elizabeth gets spot on, and it is as loud today as I suspect it was in the time uh, that she sort of writes about. It's interesting. She says that she only realised she was writing about class when one of her novels was um, nominated for a prize. And one of the judges said, oh, there's such interesting exploration of class. And it was only then that she thought, oh, that has been what I've been writing about. And she writes this essay, I think, for The Washington Post about um, what an important um, aspect of characters' lives um, classes. I mean, do you think that class is still a salient factor in churches? Absolutely. Or is there a and sense of sort of hierarchy in? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things, and it's especially true for the church that I'm a part of. So the Episcopal Church has long been associated with the upper middle class, and we have we're not a very big church. But we have always had a lot of influence in government. Uh, most of the first presidents of the United States were Episcopalians, many Supreme Court justices, many members of Congress. Uh, it is often the case, especially in New England, as you go around and you see a mill town and you see the big mansion where the mill owner lived. The mill owner also paid for the Episcopal Church to be built and left mm -hmm. um, some kind of bequest to the diocese so that the bishop and the as well as the local church would benefit from their largesse. So business leaders and government leaders uh, for the first, really from uh, the 1750s um, until today, it's a little less so now. I don't think we have quite the cultural impact that we did certainly through um, the 20th century, but it is very much a stumbling block for us. And I think for the Congregationalist Church too, at least in New England, but for Anglicans in the United States, our sense of bourgeois, upper class um, aspirations continues to be a terrible stumbling block for us mm -hmm. to be able to connect with uh, working class people or people who have no experience with organized Christianity. Yeah, there's definitely similar conversations happening in the Church of England, which I guess also sort of being part of the establishment and probably more associated with sort of middle class, mm -hmm. upper class. Um, so definitely a very live conversation over here as well. I wondered what um, relationships are like with um, sort of Catholic populations in Maine, because Elizabeth Strout um, talks about Shirley Falls, her fictional town, being divided by this river and um, the congregational churches where the professionals live um, in bigger houses and then the other side of the river you have the catholic mill workers with much more ornate churches and they're much more working class and i guess the journey that some of her characters go on is to discover that there's maybe sort of more warmth and community amongst the more working class catholic population um, there's a lot of kind of prejudice that she talks about do you do you recognize that or is that something that you think absolutely. has changed absolutely no it's very real um it's real in a kind of historical way which is that this this picture that she paints is still alive in the in the memories of people who live in Maine. So if you look at Lewiston Auburn, which are twin towns, the second largest metropolitan area in the state, it was the third, it's now surpassed Bangor as being the second largest 
Lewiston Auburn is this very story, which is that Lewiston, a Francophile town, but also with a number of Irish immigrants, um, a number of Italian immigrants, has these enormous churches. And across the river, um, but right there, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's really one town, but they would never merge. They would never merge because Auburn has always been I mean, that's where the first congregational church is. There's not a con there's not a congregational church in Lewiston. Now, for the Episcopal Church, we have a church in both towns. It's just crazy <laughs> that we have these two churches that are five blocks away, but in very different towns. Mm -hmm. And the sense of Lewiston, the the other thing about Lewiston is that it's the home of Bates College, which is which is a very selective and prestigious liberal arts college. So that's also in some ways a contrast. Mainers are not used to having, I mean, we have Bowdoin College and Colby College as well, but they're in um, sort of typical American college towns, Brunswick and Waterville. But Lewiston, to have Bates College and to have this working class Catholic immigrant communities plural and the churches then take on the kind of flavor if you if you look at um, places in Pennsylvania and Ohio um, and uh, certainly Boston you can see that churches Catholic churches took on the kind of flavor of their sort of um, ethnic heritage but always the sense of community and connection and you know the church fair was the time that everybody came to came together and this earthy, um, festive partying, um, lots of alcohol, lots of food. Whereas the Congregationalists and the Episcopalians and the mill owners, we would sort of look down our nose, even if we were shit-faced still, but we wouldn't, but we would never make a spectacle of ourselves. Um, and that of course, as you know, is a very class thing. And it's of course it's bound up in our in our roots with your nation. The degree to which we came, uh, so many of us from what is now the United Kingdom, with that sensibility. And this, I think, Elizabeth gets spot on. I wanted to ask about that because I guess um, when she talks about her own background, um, she talks about her parents having this suspicion of any kind of pleasure. Uh, and the sense that there was a kind of dangerous world outside the family where people were indulging in things that they sort of wanted nothing to do with. And then various characters in her novels also talk about shame being this really kind of defining um, characteristic and a fear of shame and a certain pride as well. Is is that something that you that you recognise exists as a kind of hangover from, from those in kind of some ways. In some ways, I do. There's a lens uh, where I I sort of see it more brightly, um, which is a kind of nuance. And and this is where I see that. I see it in the the ways in which we continue in Maine uh, to speak about the great moral failure that happens when we are sick and the great moral gain that we achieve when we soldier on and when we, um, when we deny pain and pleasure, but primarily pain or suffering. Um, so that's a different lens from the shame-based, but mm -hmm. my point is, is that all of that is a shame-based culture. 
which is to say that at some level, illness is also shame. Because if we mm-hmm. take an understanding from the from the Judeo-Christian tradition that somehow illness is God's punishment, which is still very much, it's not explicitly said, but it's so deep in our culture. It would be lovely um, just to hear about your own, I guess, background religiously um, and where you grew up and um, how you might map that onto Elizabeth Strout's novels. What what points at which you've kind of identified, obviously you're ordained, um, what points at which you've thought, actually, that doesn't match my own experience? Well, she certainly can. um, She can make a small town come alive. And I think there are people all all over the world who can relate to this sense of small townness, but she really nails it. I grew up in a very small town, really a hamlet of 22 houses and a few businesses mm-hmm. in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is a very, uh, very much like Maine in some ways, even more working class, um, even greater sense of poverty, but a lot of immigrant communities. I grew up in a Finnish American community. I am not Finnish, but grew up in a place that is still very Finnish preserved. When I started kindergarten, I was the only kid who didn't speak Finnish. Oh my goodness. Um, so I grew up in, I grew up as a Methodist. Um, I come from uh, Cornish stock um, who went to this part of Michigan to be miners. And they brought with them their zeal for John Wesley's Methodism. And then I went to college and discovered the Episcopal Church and at the same time was coming out as a gay man. And uh, the Methodist Church then and barely now um, was very um, unaffirming of gay and lesbian people. This was in the, the late 80s. So I discovered the Episcopal Church. And uh, when I came out to my family as a gay man, they were very relieved. When I came out to my family as someone who was going to become an Episcopalian and pursue holy orders, it was not welcomed news. We were the church that drank and smoked. Um, there was a sense of class. I mean, it was really, really came down to class. I remember my dear grandmother saying, well, the problem with Episcopalians is they don't show any emotion for our Lord. And, it, and she's absolutely right that religious experience and uh, spirituality is not ever spoken about. So as I travel around Maine, and I'm in a different Episcopal church every Sunday, and they're all talking about how they're dying, or they, how they don't have any kids, or that they used to have all these blah, 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 blah. And then I say, well, tell me, tell me about your engagement in the community. And they talk about how they have friends and the mayor and the teachers and the doctors. And and I say, so what do you find yourself saying to your friends and to your neighbors about your faith? And it's dead silence. It's like, Mm -hmm. I I don't talk about that. And so part of what I think Elizabeth does is to highlight this practical grit and this sense of what is right and what is wrong I think that uh, reflects a lot of rural places in America. I find that in Maine, among Episcopalians, there continues to be this privatization of religious experience that 
it's a very private thing. And so I would never talk about it or I would never uh, lest someone think I'm a whacked evangelical. And I think Elizabeth gives us these characters. I think of Olive and just what a bitch she is and how smart she is and how she can see all of the dynamics that are happening. I see that in Maine all the time. There, There is in every Episcopal church in Maine, I can find Olive in every single church. I love that she introduced these, these characters who aren't immediately lovable and you gradually understand them and you start to feel empathy for them. And I think she's such a kind of generous... Actually, especially judge for of, Olive, right? Yeah, yes. she's yeah. such a generous judge of character and, and she has talked in an interview about how she doesn't want to judge or condemn her characters even when they do terrible yeah, things right. and I think as well that sort of private religious experience also comes through in in her novels in that often when characters do experience um, mm-hmm. the presence of God or some moment of transcendence it's something deeply private which nobody else knows about which I find mm-hmm. fascinating as well it doesn't often happen in church it's something deeply Absolutely. private which as you say people don't really talk is. about I did want to ask about um, Abide With Me as well. I'm not sure how recently you may have read it, but I think in a way I would recommend it to anyone starting out in ministry in that it's quite a cautionary tale of what it's like to minister Mm. in a small town with all the risks of disappointing a congregation, of gossip. You know, he starts out as such a kind of zealot in some ways with all these ideals of living up to Bonhoeffer and then realizes that he can't sustain it how did you feel as somebody who's been a minister and now I guess sort of ministers to ministers looking after your own sort of clergy how do you look at it I think that ministry in a small town requires a kind of delight in smallness and it requires uh, clergy particularly who are as we say in Maine from away to take the community as an object for one's love and passion and to take the what are sometimes very small comments, small-mindedness, judgmentalism, a great disdain for people from away, that they come with all of their from away ideas. The clergy in the Diocese of Maine who've come from away and been able to enter into these small communities with interest and delight, thrive. And finally, I would say the other thing that Abide With Me nails is what's very true in Maine is Maine is a very small state. And while there are vast differences between Northern and Southern Maine, and more and more Southern Maine is basically a suburb of Boston, Mm. that's what some Mainers would say. There are relationships that are generations long. So I am struck by Well, on Sunday, I was in Callis, Maine. I'm sorry for the pronunciation, but that's how we say it. Um, I was in Callis, Maine, and there were like 25 people in church. Five of them have cousins who live in Portland and go to Episcopal churches here. So there's a very much a sense of not just relational um, connection, but literal biological connection in Mm -hmm. the state of Maine. But this notion that clergy coming from away, it it really can be very successful, but it requires a posture and a mindset that says, I'm really interested and delighted in being part of this small town. 
Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that about her, her, her novels, but I think she herself has said that she's moved back to Maine. And I think a church secretary said to her, Oh, I've seen you walking around. And she really didn't like it. She didn't like feeling because she'd come back from New York. She didn't like feeling that people were observing her and that the word had sort of got out that she, that she was back. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was I think um, gossip is such a theme of her novels and gossip is something which really persecutes the minister in Abide With Me. Um, but I think she has quite an ambiguous attitude to gossip. In a way, it's it's kind of the currency of small town life and needn't necessarily be this kind of malicious thing. Mm-hmm. And in other ways, it can be very destructive. As a Christian, as, as a priest, what's your view of, of gossip and its place in, I guess, church life? A bit of a tough one. <laughs> well, no, it's not tough. I um, I would never I would never say that I am Elizabeth Strout, um, would that I were. But, but I do think she's absolutely right. I think that we can use gossip for good. And I think really effective clergy serving in small towns can use the grapevine strategically. The ones who understand that what is labeled as gossip is not necessarily the same as mean-spiritedness. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to um, sometimes have have an ear uh, peeled for for what is malicious and cutting um, and undermining uh, versus um, telling people stories so that connections can thrive and mm-hmm. flourish. Just this sense that speaking about what's going on in people's lives is not necessarily um, the same as being mean. Mm. No, I think that's definitely kind of what I've drawn from from her perspective. I guess, finally, um, what would you say to somebody who is considering picking up a book? Why should they engage with Elizabeth Strout? I would say that one of the things that elders in my life, both in uh, the United Kingdom and Germany and Italy and in much of the United States, people who are 80 years old or or more, tell me that they despair of the way in which our world is so divided. And uh, particularly in this country, that we we can't really talk in mixed company politically. That uh, after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, what happened at family dinner tables at Thanksgiving Day there was there was mayhem because um, cousins and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas could not literally couldn't be at the same table um, because of our strongly held ideological uh, partisan stances. That's by way of background. Mm-hmm. It's just that if someone had never has never read Elizabeth's work, I would want them to pick up a book and be able to see with a kind of kaleidoscope the multi-dimensions of what it means to be a human and what it means to live in community and what it means to make meaning. And I think those things, um, what it means to be a human being in all of our facets, what it means to be in community and what it means to make meaning are the things, the sort of elements 
that give me hope that we are not always going to be in this place of enormous polarization. So I find Elizabeth's work a kind of hope for the way in which communities and nations may actually experience a spirit of unity. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.